This is an ABC podcast. Those that have a go will get a go. Well, I've had a go, mate. I've worked for my life. National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4. Sorry. I thought that election campaigns are tests of leadership, not tests of memory. Google it, mate. We had the debate. We worked through the hard issues. We came to an agreement. And I went to Glasgow. Hello and welcome to the party room at the end of week four of the federal election campaign. Two weeks to go, although who's counting? I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Frank Kelly from Afternoon Briefing, also on Wurundjeri land today, and I'm counting as it happens. Mm. We're bringing out the big guns today. Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia, will join us soon, as PK said, at the end of week four of this election campaign. And things are getting serious, PK. Yeah, that's right, Fran. We're getting close to showtime now, and the level of intensity is definitely kicking up a notch, I think. But let's begin where the week started as the sort of scene setter in Perth, at the Labor launch. Now, the ALP is on the hunt for three seats at least, really. Um, it would like to get more, but it thinks it can get three in WA and sent a message to voters by actually having this big media event, its big moment of launching its campaign in the West. It's a big deal as far as these things go, and, and the state has never really been the location of a campaign launched by a major party for, well, you know, not in our lives. Um, let's hear what Labor leader Anthony Albanese had to say. Labor has real lasting plans for cheaper electricity, cheaper childcare, cheaper mortgages, cheaper medicines and Medicare, and for better pay. We can do better than three more years of the government that's brought a skyrocketing cost of living and falling real wages. It was a fairly safe message from Anthony Albanese, but a very Labor message too, as you could hear. In fact, I think it's the closest he's got really to laying out his Labor narrative as a leader, which is what people have been waiting for, stringing together the policies, as you heard, for childcare, aged care, affordable and social housing, equal pay. There was a big pitch in there for equal pay and and gender equity in pay. Better pay for the care workforce, a big thing about the care workforce and their clean energy plan. He unveiled a couple of new policies. The main one was um, a shared equity housing scheme for home buyers. But I think overall, it was a message of safe change. The pitch is, why would you give the other lot another three years for more of the same? Yeah, that was that was exactly it. And in fact, even in the, the interviews that several front benches did after, they pretty much just said that, yeah. Mm. We, we Everyone's had it with this lot. We, we want to go with safe change, not big change. And Albanese has said this before, this is not a revolution. So what Labor has detected is that there is a mood for change, but not big change, that people are actually a little change fatigued, not because the government's been bold in its change at all, but because of the pandemic too, that people feel like life changed quite a lot and it's pretty much altered forever, if we're to be honest. We're still living through a great momentous change in history and that um, revolution is not what people are looking for. They're looking for safety. So as as long as they feel like that Labor will be a safe pair of hands, they are prepared to turn to Labor. And safety, that's what I he think, had to nail. Safety, I think, is a really good word for it. They just want calmness. They want um, security. 
and we'll be talking a bit about security and how that's um, come into this campaign again this week. And, um, you know, ju- just quiet confidence, really. And that's the, the Prime Minister's pitch. Look, this is what we're doing. And in fact, um, you know, cost of living has been such a major focus of this campaign. Um, Labor jumping all over it putting responsibility on the government for the rising cost of living. We got the rate rise this week, PK. Labor can't pin all the responsibility for the rate rise on the government. They're trying not to, but they were putting the focus on the conditions that led up to that rise, talking about the triple whammy, you know, of higher inflation, cost of living, higher interest rates and lower wages. But it's fair to say that that pitch from Labor, which um, Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer, was really talking up strongly before we got the announcement rates were going up. The Reserve Bank governor came out and when he announced the rate hike, took a bit of a sting out of Labor's critique because the governor, Philip Lowe, said the reason the bank put up rates this month rather than waiting was because the evidence was in that wages are growing, growing quite strongly in the private sector particularly. He also said much of the inflation pressures, not all of it, but much of it was about international factors like the war in Ukraine, which of course matches what Scott Morrison's been saying. So his comments did give the government some cover, but not a free pass entirely because he also cited domestic stimulus as a reason for the economy overheating and he forecast GDP growth to be strong this year but to drop back to 2% mm. next year and that is not a great projection. If voters are looking at that, they're going to be going, what? Growth by 2% and inflation's what? Like up at 5%? That means I'm going backwards. Yeah, and even if wages are ticking up, right, in terms of this triple whammy political, uh, economic political attack by Labor that's been prosecuted by Jim Chalmers really quite effectively, I think, Sure, wages have started to go up and, and, and you know, the RBA governor can say that and it's, 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 it's right anecdotally and it's certainly uh, the projection. But then Labor says they can't possibly keep up, as you say, with CPI. It, it's not unless wages are going to go up 6%, which we know they're not going to this year. That means you're effectively getting a pay cut because the cost of things just keep going up and your, your salary just can't like, you know, if you think of it as a race, it can't race to meet that price. And and that's going to hurt. Another point I keep hearing, and there's an intergenerational story here is, yes, but I remember 17% um, interest rates under labour in the, in, you know, in the 90s and so forth. Absolutely. But if you look at home loans during that time, they weren't at these staggering rates. We have now people on average with these $600,000 loans. That's unfathomable amounts of money on, on on people's on modest incomes so people will feel the pinch when you're talking about even rates going up you know slowly that is going to be noticed by people and that's where it becomes a political problem for the Prime Minister. It's going to be noticed by people, especially the people who have taken out loans in the last couple of years who got them basically for free and, and probably haven't factored in quite enough of a buffer. They'll be nervous. But also when you talk about wages growth, I don't think a lot of people, they'll go, yeah, okay, in theory the wages are growing up and they are, but it's patchy. Not everyone's wages are going up yet at all and people are feeling pretty hard done by because everything has been going up, as we've said before, the cost of living, look at the inflation rise. So I think it's dicey to say, oh, well, your wage is going up when a lot of people aren't feeling that. Yeah, they're certainly not feeling it. And, you know, there might be pockets of the economy where that's starting to happen. But ultimately, you know, that, that sense of not keeping up is the overwhelming theme. Now, the coalition hoped that economic um, strength would would end up favouring them, but I do think this is now becoming a political problem for the government. I've spoken to lots of people in the coalition who tell me they do acknowledge it as a big problem. They don't see it as, oh, it's fine, we're talking about... I hear this narrative, oh, as long as we're talking about the economy, they're actually saying 
people are feeling the pinch and it is hurting us. So we just have to keep, this is, I'm paraphrasing a couple of different voices here, but we just have to keep people worried about Albanese because they are grumpy. They are grumpy with the government. They are grumpy with us, they say. And they are, Fran. I mean, that's legitimate. No one is contesting that. The Prime Minister's job for the next two weeks, and we'll bring Lenore Taylor in to sort of explore what he will be doing, but over the next two weeks is just to, if I can be really frank, which I do, scare the bejesus out of people that Anthony Albanese will be a bigger risk to their finances. That's what he wants to do. Um, And part of that narrative is, you know, talking up the positive numbers and downplaying the negative. Yeah, that's right. And in in terms of voters' nervousness about Albanese and the economy, that has been an issue playing up, coming up in focus group testing. People aren't quite sure of that. You know, we know historically and deep in our psyches, there's a thing can Labor handle the economy. But in terms of Albanese in particular, uh, there is still that concern, I'm told, even sort of it was there at the start of this campaign. I'm told it's still around the focus group testing now. So that's obviously what Scott Morrison's hearing too and that's why he's pumping it for all he can. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia. Welcome to the party room. Thank you. I'm very, very pleased to be here with you two wonderful women. It's crystal clear this election is being fought and will be fought and won, I think, or lost on cost of living issues. The government's saying if you look around the world, Australia's doing well, comparatively well compared to other countries. Let's have a listen to Scott Morrison. It was the shield that we put up during the pandemic of good economic management, of well-designed policies that ensured that Australia has come through this pandemic stronger than most of the advanced economies in the world. So he's talking about the shield a lot, Lenore. Is that fair enough and is it going to wash with the voters? Well, I think it is fair enough to say that Australia came through the pandemic relatively well. But I think the thing that voters are going to be thinking about most right now, here and now in this election campaign, is how much cost of living pressures are hurting them right now. And the coalition's argument that, you know, they're always better to manage the economy doesn't match with people's lived experience. And that's Scott Morrison's big problem. Our Guardian Essential poll this week uh, found that actually 40% of people thought that Labor would be better to manage cost of living pressures, which, you know, that is essentially what the economic debate in this campaign boils down to. 30% said they thought the coalition was better and 30% didn't know. So I think that's a really good indicator that on this particular economic debate, Labor is in with a shot. And the message that Anthony Albanese is trying to coalesce in these final weeks of the campaign, it it kind of suits that debate because a lot of of Labor's policies are designed to talk to cost of living, cheaper childcare and housing policies and the like. So... Um, while Scott Morrison is obviously going to be reminding people of, you know, you can't trust Labor to manage the economy and there'll be a lot of attack ads about the past, I think in the here and now, people's lived experience here and now actually favours Labor in the economic debate. Yeah, their their lived experience here and now. But this is the big question. What the Prime Minister is trying to do is really pour a lot of doubt on some of the the promises, if you like, or the claims by Anthony Albanese, basically that a lot of things are going to be cheaper under him. If you, you heard his speech, we played the grab earlier when Fran and I were talking from the Labor Party launch Cheaper, cheaper, cheaper was the word. Um, you know, you couldn't miss it. Uh, is Labor raising expectations and is the 
is the Prime Minister right that, you know, it's a sort of that he's running this magic pen kind of, this is a magic pie kind of argument? Well, I mean, the truth is that fiscal policy is expansionary under what both political parties are promising in this election campaign. They're both pouring money into the economy in different ways or promising to. And, you know, that is going to be an issue for whomever forms government after May 21. I think um, the problem that the Prime Minister has, I guess, is that he has kind of said in the past, I can make things cheaper. I'm a better economic manager. Interest rates and, and, and cost of living pressures will be lower under me. And people, voters, quite rightly, could say, well, you haven't made good on those promises. Now, to be fair, a lot of those things are outside the control of any political leader. But he's called it that he can be responsible for economic good times. So I think the problem for him is that when, well, I mean, the economy is growing and that's kind of what's behind all of this, but for what people are feeling, it's difficult and it's hard, therefore, for him to say, but you can't blame me for that. Yeah, it's kind of a rookie mistake in a way, but other governments have done it in the past, which is say, you know, rates will always be lower under us and then you get a rate rise. John Howard suffered from that too back in 2007. And then you can't sort of claim the good news and and then try and shed the bad news and blame international factors for all of that. There's been a lot of positioning going on this week, obviously, in advance of the rate cut. Um, Scott Morrison was asked about the possibility of a rate rise and how it would affect his government's chances of being re-elected. He said this. You know what? It's not about politics. It's, it's not about politics. What happens tomorrow deals with what people pay on their mortgages. That's what I'm concerned about. It's not about what it means for politics. I mean, sometimes you guys always think, see things through a totally political lens. I don't. And Australians don't. That was a bit rich, wasn't it? You guys always see things through a political lens and I don't. He's a pretty political guy, isn't he? I mean, seriously. You know, okay, he was making the point that this wasn't about him, it was about mortgage holders, fair enough. But he's the guy who sees absolutely everything through a political lens. Mm. I mean, honestly, peak, peak chutzpah moment in my, my view. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And I think because... Whatever people think, whether they like him or don't like him, they know he's a really political guy. So that was the other problem for him. But what I found interesting too, Lenora, is by the next day after the rates had actually risen, you know, this was the day before that he was saying, don't ask me this political question. I'm thinking about the mortgage holders. It was back to the politics, <laughs> actually. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, that, that press conference with Josh Frydenberg was entirely about the politics. So kind of, you know, I don't know, that was, that was quick. It sure was, PK. Look, we've seen it get more heated this week, I reckon, Lenore, um, just across the board, and that makes sense. We're getting closer to polling day, pre-polling starts. Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, pre-polling starts on Monday as well, so it means all the politicians will be at those pre-polling booths um, trying to get people to vote for them as they increasingly vote before election day. And we've seen it um, get more heated also in these teal seats. That's where these independents are running against uh, sitting moderate, largely moderate-ish Liberal MPs. And there's been drama between Josh Frydenberg and Dr Monique Ryan's family in Kuyong, which has kind of been 
uh, quite elaborate. Now, just to kind of give people the backstory, uh, there was there's a claim by the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, that Monique Ryan's mother-in-law had said, I'll vote for you. He quoted it at a function. Monique Ryan said it was playing dirty. That got pretty ugly. Uh, Dave Shummer in Wentworth um, has been pretty, pretty nervous too and spending a lot of money on billboards. How's this all playing out in these seats? Well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? It's really hard to get clear data on these seats because, you know, single seats polls are sort of notoriously unreliable. You know, the, these, the six seats where the independents are in with a chance do seem, they seem to be building momentum, that's true. But I do think that these kind of slightly over-the-top attacks from the sitting members are an indication that they're seriously worried. But I do wonder whether they backfire on the sitting members because part of what the the appeal of the independence is politics, you know, not not as usual, a different type of politics. So, you know, I do wonder uh, whether the sitting members would be better to play things a little calmer and a little more uh, statesmanlike, if you like. Um, you know, a lot of the arguments that are being flung around also don't really make sense. I mean, the coalition's essential argument is that the independents are fake and it's undemocratic because they won't say who they'd support to form government uh, after the election if there was a hung parliament. But, I mean, surely they would be fake independents if they did say, because mm-hmm. their whole thing is they want to elevate a couple of issues that they think are important, namely integrity in politics and global heating and women's issues are the sort of the three issues they've said. Now, surely if they nominated a party ahead of time, they wouldn't be able to sort of secure extra promises, secure more commitments from the major parties in the event of a hung parliament. That's going into a bargaining deal and saying, oh, I'm going to agree to the deal, yeah. whatever you offer. Yeah, I mean, it would be crazy. And also well, it would the be crazy idea... also before we see how the electorate votes. I mean, we well, don't exactly. know how many seats either side is going to get, and that's presumably going to have some bearing on people's thinking when they get to, if, if they get to a negotiating table. If, yeah, and you'd have to say if the coalition were to, you know, move on those issues, you'd have to think that those independents, were they to be elected, would be attracted to supporting the coalition because they know they come from traditionally conservative seats. So traditionally conservative seats who are concerned about the coalition's stance on these particular issues, which is why I found it quite weird this week that the Prime Minister was really on the attack, specifically on the issues that the independents are raising, specifically on the issue of an integrity commission. Now, he went really hard against uh, the, the the very idea that you need a sort of a, an integrity commission with teeth. Now, on the one hand, that might lend weight to the argument that he's sort of given up entirely on the idea of ever negotiating with the Teal Independence if it came to that and his whole path to victory that he's trying to negotiate or he's trying to navigate is via outer suburban and regional seats. However, even if that is the case, why would he deliberately sort of poke in the eye the issues that his members are sort of grappling with in those independent seats. I mean, he's making life harder for the moderate liberals under threat from the Teal independents. And I'm not sure that it's an issue that would work for him in outer urban seats. I mean, I think voters across the board want greater accountability and are worried about corruption and integrity issues in government. So I just found that quite a curious 
um, strategy it, by the Prime it, Minister this it week. It is. And, you know, just noting, I don't know, is he gone for the fourth or the fifth time? Uh, I need a fact check on myself, but to the seat of Parramatta. Mm. Laying bare, but, you know, not, not once as far as I can see to Wentworth. Um, well, he's not welcome in Wentworth, but well, he's, that's but he's my ratcheting point, up though. the rhetoric, talking about public autocracy and faceless officials. He is, and... but even in going to Parramatta, this is this strategy that we're seeing, isn't it, Lenore, of going on the hunt in that kind of heartland, as they say, the two Sydneys, as one person mm-hmm. described it to me. You know, he's going on the hunt in those areas and shunning his base, right? Um, well, the, the the Liberal Party heartland base, the the sort of, you know, well, they're called the teal seats now, but they're not yet teal, are they? No. <laughs> the um, leafy, nice the leafy places where I would love Sydney to live, right? Um, so, Lenore, uh, what's, what, you say he's poking poking these moderates. Is he, Why? I does don't he, understand Does he think it. the arithmetic's going to work here, really? But even if he thought the arithmetic would work, I don't understand it. If it was an issue which played really well in the suburbs but badly in the teal seats, then I would see why he would need to make that choice. But what I was saying before, it isn't. It isn't an issue that will buy him votes, that will get him votes in the outer suburban or regional seats. You know, it, they might not be as exercised about it as in the would-be teal seats, but but you know they're still concerned about integrity in politics. So it is kind of unfathomable to me. And he really was kind of over the top this week. He said that an ICAC, as as the independents are suggesting, would be a kangaroo court. And in an interview with the Nine Papers, he actually suggested that um, if you handed government to faceless officials to sort of look at things like you know pork barrelling. Uh, that that would amount to a public autocracy. Now, apart from the fact that that's a contradiction in terms, you know, it, it is it is astonishing to me that a prime minister would suggest that public officials should be able to just spend money willy-nilly without any scrutiny or, or guidelines or, or recourse. I think that's an amazing thing for him to say. Yeah, I think it is too. I think it was definitely trying to scare voters. That whole autocracy thing is getting a big run around, isn't it? You know, is he trying to somehow link it to the arc of autocracy, which is the phrase he's used for China and Russia? I don't know. But it was a very strange term. I agree with you. And then banging it on about faceless officials. Um, what is we... even a public autocracy? Like, what uh, is uh, it? Uh, well, I actually don't know uh, what public I autocracy I don't know either. That's why I thought it was a strange. I mean, he, it is a word, it is a phrase he's using in terms of arc of autocracy. It just seemed to me. Is it trying to somehow make some kind of, you know, linguistic link? Xi Jinping would be an ICAC. I don't know. Yeah, no, no, exactly no. But speaking of Xi Jinping and speaking of China's security deal with the Solomons that intruded in the campaign very heavily a week or two ago, back again this week because the Solomons Prime Minister has really arced up. Um, we now know that our Prime Minister hasn't called him since the security deal was um, was signed and Scott Morrison has said again today that he's taking the advice of the security agencies and I suppose you can understand why that advice might be, let's not deal with this at a Prime Ministerial level because then the rebuff is, is altogether a different order too. But this, you know, the, the language coming out of the Solomons is quite extreme now. Lenore, is this an issue with voters, do you think? So I, I guess he's already had a rebuff at the prime ministerial level, hasn't he? So Gavari mm. was, was pretty clear. And uh, I don't know that it is a vote-changing issue with with the elect in the electorate, but it certainly means that he can't run the sort of khaki, we're better on national security lines that he would have 
absent this intervention in the campaign. It makes it very complicated for him to go there. It puts him on the defensive when he does go there. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we're going to see a defence debate and that will be very interesting, but it, it, it really muddies this issue uh, for the Prime Minister, which certainly before the campaign, he would have thought would be uh, a positive for the coalition. Can I just, um, I just want to, in case everyone listening hasn't seen any of these comments, this is one of the comments from the, uh, from Sogavare, the Prime Minister of the Solomons. I call on these people who continue to brand us their backyard to stop calling us that name and start to respect us as a sovereign, independent nation. Before he said that, he said, in custom, backyard is where the toilet is. It's where the pig and chicken pings are located. Mm. It's where rubbish are collected and burned. It's an area of the house where we relieve ourselves. So he's now complaining about the very kind of terminology that um, governments, Mm. not just this government, but many Australian governments have talked about these Pacific Island countries being in our backyard. You know, we also talk about it being a family. Well, there's trouble in the family. That's sure. Oh, yeah. There's a big family feud, it seems. There is serious trouble in the family. Um, I think that, you know, Australia has uh, put a lot of aid funding into the Pacific, but on other issues, we have been at loggerheads with the Pacific, in particular on climate policy. So, again, I don't know that it's going to be a vote changer, but Labor's policy to try to have a, a conference of the parties climate meeting in Australia in conjunction with Pacific countries, I think... Is would certainly be it's certainly a signal to the Pacific that um, at, that a Labor government would be taking some of their most existential concerns seriously. So the Prime Minister was really grilled on this. We're recording Thursday in his Thursday morning press conference, and particularly on why hasn't he picked up the phone as Penny Wong has called for him to do and spoken to the Solomon's leader. And he said very pointedly, you know, staring down the barrel of the camera, he does this intense thing. And he said, I'm being, and I'm paraphrasing, it's not a direct quote, but, you know, this is the advice mm. I've been given you know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, security agencies, you know, all of his, all of the top national security advisors saying, don't pick up the phone to Sagavare. So, you know, putting the responsibility on the official advice rather than his judgment call that he's not reaching out. So, Lenore, what did you make of, you know, that really pointed way that he's trying to send the signal? Well, uh, it was pointed. And I guess the issue is you, you can't gainsay it, right? Like nobody else knows what the advice is that he's being given. And if that is the advice he's being given from security officials, you know, you would hope a prime minister would take it. So it's sort of an impossible point to counter or argue with because no one else has the information. Lenore, just before we say goodbye, I'd love to get your thoughts on the decision from the government in particular to have debates on Channel 9 and Channel 7, but not on the ABC and not at the National Press Club. Why do you think that is? Terrible decision in my view. I think it's a bad decision and I also think the timing, that both of these debates are going to be quite late at night on a yeah. Sunday night and a Wednesday night. Um, you know, it's almost like they don't want people to watch them. I mean, I'm not suggesting that the free-to-air channels don't have, have big audiences. They do, but not. I wouldn't have thought that there would be, it would be a naturally big audience at that time on those nights. After Big um, Brother. Yeah, 10 yeah. past nine after Big Brother on a, what is it, Monday, yeah, Wednesday night. Big Brother's a popular show. But I imagine if you want to watch Big Brother and at the end you're like, oh, yeah, let's see. Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison. Can't wait. Head to head. I mean, that's when you make school lunches and go to bed, isn't it? Like, I just, yeah. I, I don't think that they're maximising the audience, put it that way. Yeah, and... 
and it seems like, well, it does seem like a snub, doesn't it's it? It's a snub. It, it, I think it is definitely a snub and I think that's a shame. The national broadcaster has a specific role. Well, Lenore, as always, picking your brain is uh, very much worth our time and listeners love it too. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, It's been an enormous pleasure. Thank you both. Yeah, thanks, Lenore. Huge time for you too. Thanks very much for joining Bye. us. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. And it is time for our question time, and the Parliament's not operating, so you need these questions. And, and uh, I've got this one from Iggy in Abbotsford in Victoria, which is not far from me. So hello, Iggy. Probably see you on the street. Um, love the show. My question is about the promises and how when governments of the day make promises regarding the longer future, like emissions, reductions and high-speed rail, are there any binding aspects of these promises uh, and should the government be elected? Fran? Well, the answer is no, mostly no. So the only binding aspect is from the voters. For instance, we can vote them out. Again. Yeah, you can vote them out in three years. For instance, we've seen the Prime Minister drop his firm election promise of a federal in- integrity commission. He said he's not going ahead with that. Um, I've actually been thinking this a lot myself, Iggy, because especially in elections, you get a lot of big promises. Um, Labor, for instance, has got a major energy policy, renewable, it's called Rewiring the Nation, and within it, it has a promise of delivering 605,000 jobs in the new industries. Now, that's a big number, and of course, they're just trying to reassure people that in the transition from coal to the new uh, energies, the new resources, that they will, you know, it brings jobs with it. But how on earth does anyone ever count that there's 605,000 new jobs? We can't, correct? So, um, in fact, they're not binding these kind of promises, except in terms of the electorate's memory and the other political parties' capacity to, you know, bring the government, keep the government to account on them. Yeah. And and I suppose there's a lot of trust and the problem is that, that it involves, right? Mm especially, as you say, like these really forward-thinking things. You know, 2050, that's... The government's going to deliver 450,000 jobs in regional Australia. I'm going to count them. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it revolves around trust and our biggest problem, but that's a whole other conversation, is that trust is eroded. And that's, I think, the big story of this election, that people... Why do you think there are so many undecided voters? People have lost their sense of trust. Okay. Well, thanks, Iggy, for your question. Thanks all of you who sent in questions this week. I know you are, yeah, we're getting a lot of them. It's fantastic. Um, you can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions if you've got one to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcasting app or leave us a review. Many of you have been on, um, on the iTunes app, I've noticed, and I like that very much. Now, we had so much fun at our live Canberra show this week, which also meant that if you didn't get to go, you could hear it because it's in your feeds this week, two party room episodes this week, that we're doing it all again in Sydney for the Sydney Writers' Festival, actually so much so that it's just before the election. So oh, I know. It's actually... It's the Thursday night before I the election. I hate that because that means that anything we've said uh, three days later, that is too close to fact call. Fact check. Yeah, but look, the Canberra audience was fabulous. I've never met a better, more politically charged audience. So thanks, everyone, for coming. All smarter than us. Yeah, and um, if you're in and around Sydney, you're going to be there at the Sydney Rise Festival, just head to their website to get tickets to the Party Room Live at Carriage Works, Thursday, May the 19th at 6pm. As PK said, just 48 hours before election night. I'm nervous. That's it for the Party Room this week. Yeah, we'll be back next week, of course. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.